Thanks for stopping by. I'm Corey Edwards. That's right. I know I don't sound like myself. I know I sound like the announcer on a smooth jazz station. But that's because it's early in the morning. This is how my voice sounds early in the morning. And I thought, you know, I can't pass up this opportunity to use this wonderful velvet voice. Yes, that's right. This is Thanks for Stopping By, but I kind of want to change the show now because of my voice. I kind of want to, I don't know, talk about uh, the things in the world today and why can't we all just get along. And now, here's Marvin Gaye with What's Going On. And I don't, I'm not going to play Marvin Gaye, but uh, I also like to use this voice to uh, just narrate to myself in the morning. I'll say, and then the heroes knew it was time to embark on a great journey a journey of lore, a journey of fantasy, a journey beyond your wildest imaginations. Uh... And that's right, I'm just sitting in my car here talking to myself, just enjoying the deep voice. There are people that can do this all the time, but I can only do this before 8 a.m. So I've dropped the kids off, and now it's just you and me. And uh, welcome. Welcome to Smooth Jazz 98.1. Uh, we're going to be playing some Kenny G later, but uh, first we're going to listen to the weather. What's the weather like on a smooth jazz station? I don't, I don't really listen to smooth jazz stations, so I'm, I'm just trying to imagine it right now. You know, the weather tonight is mild. There'll be a cool rain, maybe some deep distant thunder. Or maybe that's just the sound of my voice because it's just you and me tonight. You and me, babe. Tomorrow there'll be light drizzle and a beautiful sunset. I'd like to also remind you that this hour is brought to you by Smooth Mom's Marmalade. That's right. Mom's Marmalade goes on smooth, goes down smooth, tastes so sweet. They don't do that. That's a weird sponsor. Anyway, I'd like to welcome you to Thanks for Stopping By. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, saw, I got a deep rumble. You know what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to talk about animal adventures. That's right, animal adventures. Oh, the adventures I've had with animals. I think that my son, Nate, was talking about... Uh, I don't know why. He's full, he's full of facts. Like the kid from Jerry Maguire. Uh, Did you know the human head weighs eight pounds? He said, uh, do you know you can't ride an elephant on his back? I'm like, well, you can try. He says, no, no, no. I just read that you they put this, they put this saddle on the elephant... And there are two chairs on either side. So you're kind of riding in one of the baskets on either side because it's just too hard to ride on the back of an elephant. And I said, hmm, they should try that with camels because I've ridden on a camel. And they're like, you have? And then we got into these stories of like what animals I have <laughs> interacted with because I've had some world travels and I've had a lot of opportunities to have some grand adventures, as my deep voice would say. Uh, I have ridden a camel. They are not fun to ride. It looks it looks majestic in the movies when you're framed against the rising sun. Uh, I did actually ride camels um, right in front of the pyramids. And they kind of lope along and they swing you back and forth because you're kind of you're kind of sitting in front of the hump. Uh, it depends on what kind of camel you ride. <laughs> it depends on if you get the 300X or if you get the 300XL. Um, 
And the uh, camel jockey, I don't know what they're called. He says, oh, you want to go faster? I was like, yeah, this is kind of slow. He whips the back of this thing and it takes off. And I am bouncing up and down like it's like the worst, the car with the worst shocks you've ever been uh, driving in. And uh, it was alarming. Then I was just hanging on for dear life. Then, of course, I've ridden a horse. Um, And I, you know, usually you ride horses in a very controlled environment. But this time um, it was my wife and I, we were making hoodwinked name drop. And we were in the Philippines. And one of the things you do in the Philippines when you're bored, uh, it's incredibly cheap. You can take a trip to Boracay. Boracay. It is a paradise island. It is an island resort where everything is, is, is so cheap you can't believe it because it's right next to the Philippines. And so you could get you get a massage for like 40 bucks for an hour. And it wasn't like, it was good. And like you could get like all kinds of wonderful food and drinks. Um, and then we went horseback riding. And, but we went horseback riding like on the beach. And then from the beach, we went up through this trail. And then all of a sudden, we're on a city street. I say city in quotes uh, because it was a very tiny town, very uh, rural, very tropical town, like literally thatched huts among like little like um, uh, shops with tin roofs and stuff. But there were cars going on this little street here in this island. And Vicky just takes off down the street. So now we're riding amongst the cars on horses. And she looks back at me and she is having the time of her life. She is, she is beaming. I'll never forget the smile on her face because it is the complete opposite of the look on my face, which was, uh, how shall I put what my expression was? Yeah. It was something like that. It was, it was, it was, if you could take the, the sound yeah, and put it on a face, that was my face. Uh, it was one of the greatest rides on a horse that Corey had ever had. But I will uh, tell you, I was glad when it was over. She was like, that was great. And I was like, yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Uh, and then also on Barack, I, I had one of my greatest um, uh, animal memories, since we're sharing animal memories here. Um, I, uh, I, I love monkeys. Big surprise, I love monkeys. And we went up into this kind of, not a tree house, but kind of an elevated cabin in the trees. And this guy kept all these little, um, I think they were rhesus monkeys. They were the teeny tiny monkeys that just crawl everywhere. And they were everywhere. And you could walk up to them and kind of put your hand out slowly. And, uh, and you know, he, they, were, they were gentle. They would approach you and take food out of your hands. I know, I've seen Nope now. I've seen Nope. I know not to mess with the chimpanzees. But these were delicate little tiny fuzzy monkeys. And the guy said, the guy, the monkey guy, he says, don't, don't walk up to them with anything in your pockets because they'll take them. They'll take whatever's in your pockets. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I left a coin in my pocket and it was a larger uh, Filipino coin. Their coins look, they look like big brass or gold coins. They look like Bilbo Baggins would be carrying these coins. So this was this big old coin. It's about the size of a half dollar, silver dollar, sorry. Um, and I put it in my pocket and I walk up to this monkey and he immediately hops down onto the cabin floor, runs up my leg, gets his hand in my pocket, whoop, gets that coin, take, runs up on my shoulder, and he takes off. He takes off with the coin. <coughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I was just pickpocketed by monkeys. So whenever I'm in a group setting, you know, a get-to-know-you group, a small group or whatever, they say, let's go around the room and say one interesting fact about you that nobody knows. And uh, I'll either say, I can ride a unicycle, which I can, I know you're not surprised there either because you think of me and you think, but the other thing I say is I was pickpocketed by monkeys 
That sounds like something from a children's book, but it's true. And I loved it. And I still have pictures of like uh, a couple of monkeys on my shoulders. That was like one of the best days of my life. And I think that was where I was smiling and my wife was like, yeah, a little bit. Um, But I loved them. I love monkeys. So let's see. Horses, monkeys, camels. Oh, and then I just took my boys on a Boy Scout camp out. We were out at this ranch in Oklahoma and I had heard that there were... um, you know, some deer, um, and, and other big animals out there. And just as we're leaving, everybody's packed up and our car's one of the last cars out of the ranch. We're driving down the, one of those long dirt roads to get out of the ranch. And there is a Buffalo just walking slowly across our path. Uh, they are majestic, quiet, huge animals. And we started this discussion with elephants. It's about the size of an elephant, about the size of a car, maybe, and it just walked right past us. And then we saw a second one. And we got out. We took pictures. It just kind of looked at us. And um, then we watched it walk walk away. And it found this patch of dirt. And it laid down like a dog and kind of wallowed in the dirt to kind of scratch its back or cool off and got back up again. It was like a creature out of Star Wars. So uh, that was just recently. We had a great buffalo sighting. Well, I'd like to talk like this for a little bit longer. But I'm sure you couldn't stand it much longer. So... Coming now to a podcast near you is our guest and the rest of the show. My guest today is always great to talk to when it comes to story and screenwriting. Uh, I'd call him a guru of story. I'm going to use the word guru uh, because I love that word. And um, he is an associate professor and dean of media and screenwriting at Asbury University. My guest is Sean Gaffney. Well, hello there. Well, hello there. Fancy meeting you here. Yes, fancy meeting you on this podcast. I always say uh, it takes a podcast for two friends to call each other these days, doesn't it? No, right? Well, I, you know, you, you have done so many things in the world of screenwriting and story. I remember back in the day, as the kids say, uh, you worked at Warner Brothers and I was still living in L.A. and I would meet you for lunch or I would just go over there and you give me a little tour of the place. But tell people what you were doing at Warner Brothers for a while. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was kind of fun. It was, a, it was a, a great job for a writer to have. I was the story administrator for Warner Brothers Features, uh, which when I got that position, I, I told my wife, that's going to look great on a resume. Um, it sounds really cool, but it, it really was just a administrative support. There's no creative, uh, but it was an administrative support position in the story department, uh, which is the place that keeps all of the scripts for the features. Um, so we, our department had the readers that would do the critiques for both scripts that were being submitted and scripts that were in development. Um, we, we supported the, uh, creative execs, uh, in a lot of different ways, um, you know, pretty much we were kind of a catch all for a lot of the things that, that they needed. And uh, yeah, so that was part of my job. But the, actually, the most fun part about my specific position was I also was the one who oversaw the archives where we had uh, collected all of the scripts throughout the history of Warner Brothers from the silent era to present day. That's uh, what I found fascinating. Like, what did you what did you go back and, and kind of check out, even if it wasn't your job, you could just kind of go back and access that stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of times, even with my job, it was kind of fun. Like when they, uh, at one point, Warner Brothers decided to start releasing electronic copies of some of its classics. So I had to go and find what, what was the cleanest draft of Casablanca that we had, uh, things like that. Um, 
And, and there's one project we did uh, where we were updating our computer and we wanted to make sure that the database had everything that we actually had. Um, and so I, you know, I spent a summer, uh, me and one of the other employees, we went up to the warehouse and went through every single box that uh, Warner Brothers had put, Story Department had put stuff into uh, and just cataloged it all. And it was, uh, I, I was in geek heaven. I picture that warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's full of like scripts and occasionally a Looney Tune character jumps out. You know, that's right. It's exactly right. The Animaniacs uh, ran it for a while. And it was <laughs> it's just in disarray. Their archival uh, skills are terrible. The Animaniacs. They're, they're pretty awful. They're, they're, their system is they're the only ones. I think Wacko is the only one who understands where things are actually kept. Yeah. My gosh. Come on, guys. Uh, well, they, they, they sing the alphabet in all 50 state capitals and things. Um, but well, so, so that, that, uh, what did you glean from, I mean, I know that your, uh, your background had already been in screenwriting. You were a writer yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you glean from that job and that time there? Yeah, I, I, I took the position, um, uh, because I had, I had a mentor, Dean Vitale. Uh, who at the time was mentoring me, um, and he pretty much ordered me. He said, you need to get a job on a lot. Wow. Um, any job. <laughs> could be the mailroom, could be whatever, but you need to be on the lot so you could learn the business from the inside. Uh, so we we have as writers, you know, we come to Hollywood thinking, you know, well, this is either, either we have in our mind, this is the way Hollywood works, or we have no clue how Hollywood works and it's just a big mystery and we just send scripts out into a black hole and hope that, you know, we hear an echo back. Um, and so he said, no, get out, get on a lot. So I, I got a job in as a temp through a temp agency that um, was the exclusive agency for Warner Brothers at the time and said, I'll take any position at Warner's. Um, and I and I got a wide variety of positions. One was, you know, I, I did tempt every position in the story department that they had um, throughout wow. the time. I was a temp. And I was also in other divisions. I was in the promotions department. I did uh, one day temping with the producers of the TV show ER. Um, wow. I was just kind of all over. I was, I was over at uh, TNT for, for a couple of days. So just all over the place. But uh, story was what I was driven to because to, I'm, I'm a writer. And so I just loved working with the story department. Um, and I, I kind of became their go-to temp. In fact, they would call me before they approved anybody's vacation to make sure that I could cover while they were gone. Oh, that's uh, great. Well, I mean, that's yeah. a real that's a real thing I tell young people is like, if you just show a good work ethic, if you just care, man, it puts you ahead of a lot of people that I've encountered yeah. in the business, a lot of young people. Yeah, yeah, just showing up and doing the job. Uh, and then when, when a full-time position opened up, I interviewed and uh, and got it. One, one of the funny things, I worked with Teresa Wayne, who is the um, senior VP of, of the department, and she, um, <laughs> in my interview was explaining the job and she said, okay, and one of the boring parts of the job is you're going to be responsible for the archives, which means that you're going to be, you know, all of the paper that is, and then she stopped herself and said, oh, wait, that's the part you geek out about. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not the boring part to me. That's the exciting part to me. Yeah. Oh, I still want to know, is there, is there a discovery you remember, like an old script or you're like, oh, I had no idea. I, Cause I heard that like, screenplays were formatted differently like 50 years ago and even you know 20 years ago like you can see the evolution of how how movies were kind of like blueprinted out in these yeah, documents how, 
I would say that's true of how they're developed. The format itself has pretty much stayed the same for a hundred years. Wow. Um, so, so the look of them wasn't all that different. But there, there are a couple. I mean, there are a couple geek discoveries. Like I, I found um, a copy of an early draft of the Princess Bride when they were trying to sell it. Uh. Uh, I found an early draft of The Godfather, um, which is kind of fun. Uh, at one point, I held in my hands an onion skin copy. So onion skin was this uh, really lightweight see-through paper back in the days of typewriter um, when they would make copies. Before they had Xerox machines, they would type up the scripts four or five at a time by having this really thin paper and having carbon paper in between the copies. Oh man! Um, and so you knew how old it was based on that. Uh, and it, it was a, it was a copy of a play called uh, Rick's place. <laughs> or, uh, and, and I realized I'm like, what in the world is this? And I start flipping through the pages. It was the play that Casablanca was based on. So I was holding a copy of the original play that made them go yeah we want to buy this play and we want to turn it into this movie wow um, it almost sounds are... like the name of the sitcom that was the spinoff from the movie rick exactly. plays exclamation exactly. point right yeah yeah that's amazing then, as far as as far as kind of cool this is the way they did it um i went i i was in a box that had a bunch of the old silent film era and there was just a whole slew of random dog movies uh, you know this is a movie about this dog that you know fights a bear this is a movie about this dog uh who um moves to new york city and here's a story about this dog who just just a bunch of dog stories and i was kind of confused because you know in looking at them we didn't make any of those that i could figure out because uh, that's part of my job too was to kind of research and see did we make the movie that we have th this particular script for and then i found some correspondence um a lot of what I was finding was correspondence that was really cool. And it was uh, in the days of, you know, addressed to Jack Warner. But it was a um, uh, just a request going out to agents asking for dog movies. So huh. at the you know how at the end of the movie, you'll see, you know, James Bond will return in and with a yeah. title. Well, at that time, Warner Brothers was in big financial trouble and they did a movie called Rin Tin Tin. Um, about a dog, originally based off of a true story, um, but about a dog uh, who has all of these adventures. It was a dog who got adopted actually in Germany during World War One uh, or in France or something. Wow. Um, but Rin Tin Tin was a huge smash and became a series of movies that, that saved the studio because it was such a big hit. And they were cranking out as many Rin Tin Tin movies as they could. And at the end of every Rin Tin Tin movie, it would say, yeah, Rin Tin Tin shall return in and a title. And apparently the last Rin Tin Tin movie said Rin Tin Tin will return in Rin Tin Tin and in the wilderness. Huh. But they didn't have a script. They didn't have a story. All they had was the title. So they sent out to all these agents saying, if you have any dog story that could fit the title, <laughs> Rin Tin Tin in the wilderness, send it our way. And that's what that box was. It was a bunch of people trying to find a story that would fit that title. Wow. I, now I've heard, I, and I've always heard the name Rin Tin Tin. I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't been brought back with all the reboots and, and kind of, you know, taking yeah, old it, IP and making it new. It seems like they it, could do it. It really is time. Because it hit, one of the reasons that you remember it, even though it was, you know, decades before either of us was born, is in the 50s, they turned it into a TV series. 
Okay. Yeah. That was still running on like, you know, old Disney, um, you know, Friday, the Friday afternoon Disney thing or, you know, things like that. It was, it was, it kind of hit reruns uh, when I was a kid. And so I, I, I had heard of Rin Tin Tin. It didn't go out of the memory, but it's, it's time. It's time for a yeah. Rin Tin Let's do that. Uh, well, and you mentioned like silent films. Did, there were actually scripts that you found for silent films. Are those formatted any differently? Uh, very differently because dialogue didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. So, or like, was so, it just an elaborate treatment of like, then they go here, then they go here. Pretty, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. With, with, um, you know, the closest thing to dialogue was a uh, cue card, uh, uh, you know, it's a cue card and what would be said on the cue card. Um, it wasn't really hyper different um, from a script, but it, it really was. It's just, you know, describing here's the action that happens. Some some of them looser than others. Um, yeah. you know, some of the comedies would just say, and then they do a comedic bit and kind of go on. From, <laughs> uh, figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, if they knew people were. Did you... Um... Like, do you write uh, differently now after reading? I, mean, I don't know how many scripts you've read or discovered or kind of looked through. Uh, did that time affect how you were writing or how you were thinking about what screenplays you were passing around? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, and the 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 coverage on them. So co coverage is uh, the script reader's notes, um, and our, our department would do coverage on scripts coming in. Uh, as well as developmental. Um, and for the scripts coming in, the coverage is always focused on, is this story worth buying or not and why? That always and, chills me to the bone because I have learned that sometimes the coverage is being written by, you know, a very young person, an intern, uh, somebody who's assigned with a bunch of bullet points to to look for. Yeah, yeah, which which was the nice thing about Warner Brothers at the time because that is absolutely true. I know production companies were... If you're an intern, that's your first job is you learn how to do coverage. And so, yeah, you have some kid right out of high, right out of college <laughs> trying to figure out whether your script's worthwhile or not. Warner Brothers had 15 professional readers on its staff. It was a union position. Oh, that's better. Yeah. In fact, they got paid. They got paid better than I did <laughs> <laughs> because they were paid to be experts. They were paid to know exactly what they're talking about. And some of them had been readers for 30 years. Um, they, they really, this was their gig. This is, this is what they really knew. And I learned a lot by reading their coverage, by getting their insights of what makes a story work, what makes a story not work. Um, what are the things that we all think are like, you know, when you when you write something, you're like, oh, this is cool. Nobody's ever thought of this before. Um, and then you read the coverage and the guy's like, yep, reading yet another script, trying to pull this off as if it's, you know, impressive uh, kind of a thing. So it really did help shape me as far as what do people look for? What stands out in scripts? Um, what are the parts that bog down a script? Uh, it was, it was it was great for my education as as a uh, screenwriter and ultimately training. I didn't know it at the time, but it was training me to be a professor as well to kind of go, oh, yeah, here's you know, I've got these these 15 pros that I'm just spending every day reading through their their view of script and how and what makes things work or not work. Yeah, I well, you know, I said that I would come have lunch with you on the lot and sometimes it was just for fun. But I, I remember many times where I said, can I? can I have an hour of your time? And I would either uh, pitch you the pitch I was going to write. Um, or I, I think at one point I brought index cards and laid them out yeah. on the floor and yeah. your brain works differently than my brain. So it's like, it's like you can see the code in the matrix. And I, I think I had different colored 
note cards for like action beats or emotional beats. And you could look at like a floor of 50 cards and go, okay, this needs to move up to here. This one you don't need. Uh, you need yeah. three more beats here. And it was so helpful because it doesn't matter how many times you look at your own stuff. It's different than not only when someone else looks at it, but you were just kind of a great, um, just uh, that's how I'll say it. You saw the code. You could see it. You could see the patterns. I that that day is one of my favorite memories because i think if i remember correctly because we did we covered my floor in my office with the cards and i think we both stood on my desk <laughs> just looked down at the floor uh it was a, it was a fun uh it was a fun moment well that i mean and you've always kind of had you've always been a writer but i i feel like you've always been a teacher uh deep down inside and so when you became a teacher of writing uh, has that, I mean, that, that's been a lot of your journey, uh, for the past several years. Is that, uh, kind of like, I mean, how, how has that been going as far as like teaching young writers, what you have learned, does that fire you up in, in a different way or the same way as being a writer? Um, yeah, cause I, 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 I'm definitely am called to teach and my, my career, when you kind of look back on it. Um, there are a lot of things that would be considered um, detours, maybe even, or, or uh, well, this isn't the smartest way for somebody who's trying to get a career going to, to do their career, that are the things that make me perfect for the position I have now. <laughs> um, That's interesting. The... Wait a minute. Talk about that. So detours that you didn't plan on, and now you look back and you're like, I see how I had stepping stones oh, yeah. to now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, War you know, Warner Brothers itself is one of those. I, I'd never set out to have an office job at a at a studio. Um, it, it would never have occurred to me to try to get an office job because it takes it takes away from writing. I'm not every every day I would be in there, you know, doing payroll, doing um, you know human resources type stuff, doing making you know standing at the copy machine helping uh, you know helping Jason make copies so that we can then deliver them around the building all that time I'm not writing. Um, so I would never have looked for that. And of course I have the inside of this is how studios think. This is how they decide what to green light and what not to green light. light. So that, that's an education that I can pass on to students that that'd be the only way really to get it. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a diverse writer. So uh, um, I, I write children's animation. I write, uh, I, I write plays. Uh, I write gothic horror. I write uh, sci-fi. I write situation comedy. I write in the Christian market. I write in the secular market. Um, I, I write books. Um, I'm, I'm all over the place with the kind of writing that I do. And as you know, when you're in Hollywood, the advice, and it's smart advice, is specialize. Uh, it's, you, you want people to know that, oh, if I need a rom-com, uh, with deeply intelligent characters, this is the guy I go to. Oh, if I want to, if I want to write, you know, if I want to to make an action movie um, that includes uh, universal themes uh, that resonate, so it's not just action. Oh, well, here's the guy that does that. Um, that helps your career. That helps that helps your career go a lot faster. And my career went very slow. 
in part because I'm writing for Veggie Tales, and now I'm <laughs> now I'm writing a theater piece uh, for a Christmas uh, place, and now, now I'm writing a feature film, and you know now I'm writing a pilot for a TV show, um, now I'm writing you know animation, uh, now I'm writing live action, and it it you know looking back. Um, it'd be very clear. And I, I'm bold enough to say that if I decided to specialize, if I wanted to be that kind of smart about my career, right out of college, I would have gone to LA. I would have gotten a writer's PA job on a police procedural. And I would have gotten myself on law and order. And I would have written for law and order for 20 years. Uh, and I'd have a huge bank <laughs> and, and, a, and a, you know, a, a career that's, you know, closer to the A-list than um, where I am now on the kind of, you know, where if people ask you, have you written anything I've seen? I have to get very specific and maybe they have or maybe they haven't. So from that point of view, yeah, not, not, very, not very smart. I've always, there was always a conscious choice, though. I always knew that by writing variety that I wasn't, um, you know, it's the career that I thought I was supposed to have as opposed to the fast rising, um, dedicated, narrow in career. Yeah. And then when I, when I became a teacher, which really, I, I, I've done adjunct teaching and I've taught at conferences, but I didn't become a full-time teacher until um, eight, nine years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm older, so I'm not in my 20s. So it was quite a while <laughs> into it. And when looking for teaching jobs for screenwriting, there's very few schools that have that, uh, have that position, that can afford to have that position. And those that do only, can only hire one screenwriting professor. So the screenwriting professor is the one who has to teach the TV writing class. They have to teach the playwriting class. They have to teach the new media writing class. I've written a lot for YouTube. They have to teach the feature film class. It's like, oh, well, my slow career was making me the perfect person to be able to teach all those things. Because I can, I can tell my students, oh, when I wrote this script, when I was on this project, yeah. uh, no matter what media we're talking about. That, so that's that's amazing, yeah. That's, and that's clarity you don't get until you're a few decades in to, to even know what your career was aiming at. Exactly. Um, sometimes you just gotta run to the next job. Exactly right. Well, so, and, I, and I'm sure that I haven't done a lot of teaching, but as I as I have mentored or talked to a lot of younger writers, just just um, spewing out what I know to them, I kind of start reteaching myself. Like, oh, I guess I do think that, and like only by yeah. teaching someone else and saying things out loud do I start clarifying who I am or what I really believe in writing is important. Um, so I'm sure it's been gratifying to see the, uh, successes and failures of your students. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you learn, uh, I learn from my students every year. I get, I get deeper and deeper into my knowledge. I believe, you know, somebody once said the best way to learn any skill is to teach it to somebody else. Uh, and there's a truth to that, that, that you were pointing out of, oh, in the process of teaching it, <laughs> I, I never knew how to articulate this before, or oh, I didn't even realize that this is a truism. But now that I'm teaching it, I see, oh, yeah, this is universal. Wow. And, and as, as you, a lot of your classes are kind of fun because you will play uh, segments from movies and then, and then stop <laughs> it and go, now, do you see what just happened there? Or do you see what was, or, 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 you know, I love a lot of the backstories of the movies we already know that are finished. And you say, hey, it wasn't always that way. Did you know that this yep. scene wasn't even in the movie until they 
until they did the focus uh, screening, you yeah. know, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any uh, uh, any favorite things you like to, to pull on students? Like, I remember you were showing one movie and it's like, this is how the movie should have started, but that's not how yeah. it started. I, I, I just did that actually Monday night. Oh, um, week. I, I, I played that game. I uh, it's it's a movie I, I, I probably shouldn't mention it. Uh, it's a movie that has a great opening scene, a great premise, uh, wonderful cast. Uh, and it was a complete bomb. Uh, it, it cost uh, $30 million to make, and it, uh, it made less than a million at the box office. It has a 2% Rotten Tomato score, I think. I mean, just like a complete bomb. Um, and I play the opening scene for, for the students, and it's very intriguing and interesting. And it sets up this mystery, and there's all kinds of questions that it, that it raises um, that aren't confusing, but make you curious, which is, which is one, of the, one of the screenwriting rules is... Um, uh, which I think William Master Simone is the first one that I heard uh, put it down as you want to make your audience curious, not confused. And uh, it was perfect. It was, a, it was, it was like a perfect opening scene. Um, and then I asked the students who none have, you know, usually none, maybe one has ever seen the movie or even heard of the movie. Um, and, and, you know, like, so why did this fail? And then I go, it fails because I just lied to you. This isn't the opening scene. <laughs> I go back and I play the real opening and the real opening is all, uh, voiceover narration that answers every single question that's brought up in the scene before you even see that scene. It answers everything for the audience. And it's, uh, I love to use it because it's an example. Um, I can't blame the writers because I don't think the writers wrote the narration uh, in their first draft. Right. Uh, the producer somewhere saying, well, the audience has to know everything. Otherwise, they're not going to like the story. Uh, so it, it ends up talking down to the audience and you're, you're, you're checked out even before it gets to the opening, to the actual, before you meet any of the actual actors, you're done Man. with it. <laughs> I, I find that a lot, that producers are concerned and very worried about the intelligence of the audience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know it's, and it's a fine line. I think uh, a director has to really trust where that line is between confusion and curious yes. curiosity. Um, and you can just kind of feel it. But I, most producers I've worked with, it's like they just keep jamming exposition into the mm -hmm. movie. I think uh, uh, one, one thing I worked on, um, it was uh, uh, you see the villain doing things for about 20 or 30 minutes into the movie. And you don't know why he's doing them. And the producers just were really nervous about that. And I ended up losing that battle. And we had to shoehorn in. Uh, that I mean, you know, it's an animated movie for for kids. One of the one of the ones that I was working on, and, and uh, you just had to like put that scene in where the villain talks about his plan and and says, "Well, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I want." And uh, you know, I, I'm sure the movie is is fine, but it's not. It doesn't make you lean forward in your chair and go, "What is this guy's deal?" I don't mind as an audience member a little confusion, a little like wait and see if if it's yeah. If you just keep spoon feeding out just little like questions. Yeah. And I, I, I tell my students that the the point that you want is you want the audience to look to the movie to answer their questions. It's okay for them to be curious and have questions. And if they're leaning forward going, okay, uh, where's the answer coming? What you don't want is them to turn to their neighbor to ask <laughs> the question. <laughs> and that's the difference between the I don't have a clue what's going on, I'm completely lost, and oh, I can't wait to find out what's happening. Right. Groundhog Day is the perfect example. Uh, everybody loves Groundhog Day because it's a great movie. They never explain why he's stuck. 
Isn't that interesting? There, there, there's never a, you know, which I think in early draft, they had a witch curse him or uh-huh. something like that um, to try to explain it. And eventually like, you know what, we're not going to explain it. We're, we're never going to tell anybody. There's no, oh, he found a penny that, you know, had the wrong date on it or, um, you know, he, he said the wrong thing to the gypsy or, um, you know, there's, or, you know, he curses God and then God curses him. Nope. He's just stuck in this loop and then he gets out of the loop and the audience never worries about it. That is so interesting. And, I, you know, it maybe did come down to I wonder if it came down to a focus screening where it's like no audience asked uh, and they were like, OK, we're OK. Because because I mean, I guess sometimes I over uh, like I, I'm overconfident. And, you know, on, honestly, if you get a group of people together and even when there, there's uh, I've had like a live reading of a script where we all sit around and read it. And if everybody's confused, then I'm like, okay, I overextended myself. And, and mm-hmm. you know, so I guess if Groundhog Day had confused everyone or they were, if they were bugged the entire movie by like, why is this happening? They could have shoehorned in something at the very beginning. But yeah. I think it was a bold move to just not, not do it and wait and see. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a, um, it, it, everything's a balance. I'm, I'm a moderate and I, and I think not enough people understand um, that being a moderate is a good idea, which meaning like in this example, you can over explain and you can under explain. We're looking for just right. We're looking for the Goldilocks. What's the just right in the <laughs> middle? You're not going to solve the problem by, oh, there's too little information. Therefore, let's pile it on. It's like, what is the just right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, and uh, but there's so many things you're working on. I, I don't know how much you can talk about. Um, two two big projects um one is you are finishing a feature film and that's amazing yeah tell us us about that yeah this is a a a feature um called not your romeo and juliet uh that was shot uh, at asbury uh produced by asbury it's a micro budget feature so it's a twenty thousand dollar budget all everything soup to nuts uh, feature film. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's, it, it kind of started, we, we like to do here at Asbury every summer, we do a big project of some kind a, a, a large film. Uh, we'll bring in, you know, some professionals. It could be a, uh, a, a sport, uh, sport shoot type thing. It could be, um, a music video. Uh, we have uh, Barry Blair who, uh, was part of audio adrenaline is our sound uh, professor. Oh, that's great. With. That's cool. Yeah, we're one of the few small schools of this size that has a dedicated sound program. Uh, so one year in the summer, he, he he still produces. All of our professors still work professionally. He still produces and has connections in Nashville. So he found 10 bands from Nashville to come up to the campus for a week and had the students shoot music videos for them <laughs> that they then you know, gave back to them to, if they wanted to use or not want to use. So we always have some sort of big project like that. Um, and the, the, the problem is, is you know, trying to come up with financing for projects uh, or you know, sometimes we have like um, uh, Sony Affirm Pureflix just shot a series here uh, over the summer. Um, that our students could, you know, some of the students were hired to participate in, but we're, you know, it's always, you know, iffy. Can we get a project? Uh, if we get a project, is it financed already? If it's not financed, you know, the school doesn't have money to produce. It's a yeah. school, um, so uh, so we're always looking for. Well, is there something we can do that costs what a regular class would cost to do? 
Wow. So I was I was watching a play here, um, and I was just kind of entranced by one of the characters, just her spirit. Um, and I thought, oh, that'd be that'd be fun to transport that spirit into a student in modern day college. <laughs> um, and I started thinking of a story that could take place, and I realized, oh, if I if I write this story, if I create it to take place on a campus where we have all of the locations with a primary young cast where we have easy access <laughs> to uh, uh, actors and set modern time so we don't have to redress anything or try to make the campus look like it's 1960s or um, anything like that, I might be able to write a script that could be made for $10,000. That was the original budget was $10,000. Um, and in true Hollywood fashion, you doubled the budget. We doubled the budget, yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, that's, that's kind of a fun story even on that part. Because uh, I, I, I had the script idea, I went to my boss, this was last October, so October of 21. Um, and I said, I've got an idea for a potential micro budget film that we could shoot in the summer of 23. And he said, well, we don't have anything in 22. How fast can you write it? So I, <laughs> October and had a first draft by Thanksgiving and then a draft I could give to him by the first week of December. So it went to him and some of the faculty and they greenlit it. They basically said, yeah, let's make it. Wow. Um, and then it was off to the races. Now tell me again, uh, how fast did you write that screenplay? The first draft? In, in, in say six weeks. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little less. This yeah, is where I, you know, to, to tell any young writers listening to this, you know, just keep sharpening your, your tool set because the day will come where you won't have all the precious time and, uh, that you need the opportunity, the door will open and you just gotta like get it done. And that's, a, that's, that's a fast thing to jam through. But also I, I think it was, uh, it's so cool that I, I think a lot of writers, you know, they carry around a script and try to find locations or try to find the perfect situation. And you, I mean, I think you did, you were inspired, but then you saw, I need to write to this situation. I need to write to the location I already have, the actors and extras I already have right on campus. You know, you didn't write a story about being lost at sea or right. um, something that <laughs> takes place in the 1800s. You're like, I know I can get this, you know, right to this. Like if I, I, I will tell people, if you're if your dad owns a grocery store, write a grocery store movie right now. Yeah. Yeah. Be mindful of of your budget. Be mindful of where, especially when you're starting out, um, you know, if your passion is, you know, space opera. Just know that, you know, if you're going to write a movie that's going to cost $120 million to make, uh, your chances of it getting made decrease. And that's OK. If that's you know, I'm, I'm one of those teachers like there, there's some who's like, you know, we're going to teach you how to write the Hollywood blockbuster. or We're going to teach you how to write the indie movie you can make yourself. Or we're going to teach you how. And I'm like, well, write your passion, um, write what you want to write, but be realistic about knowing do you want it to get made or not? And how, how much work do you want to do to get it made? Um, and that's, that's absolutely right. If you, if you really want something made, um, it's easier to raise $10,000 or $20,000 than it is to raise $2 million or $20 million or $200 million. Um, that's just kind of a fact of life. Right. So if you can write small cast, few locations, or at least free locations, but the fewer locations, the shorter the, the shoot time. If you can write it specific to, uh, I know people who have written two specific actors. It's like they've got friends who are who are professional actors, and they're like, "I'm going to write it with you guys in mind, uh, so we don't have to go out and try to hire somebody or try to convince somebody um, to come in on the project." 
um, if you know, like, yeah, what, what, what do you have? If you know what kind of cameras you have, if you know what kind of lighting you have, um, you know whether you can pull things off or not. If you know if you have access, like I'm at a university, so we have access to a costume shop. We have an access to a prop shop. Um, we can get things made that way. Um, I also I produced it as well, or am producing it when post, as well as writing it. Um, and I was mindful of what I have and don't have. So one of the things I did was uh, we need, you know, th this pretty much becomes three different classes for our students. So we needed three professors to oversee the classes. So I got our DP as one of our professors, <laughs> who's a professional DP. Um, our head grip is one of our professors uh, who teaches that course. Um, and I got um, our production, uh, uh, our, the head of our theater program, who's a designer to be our art director, production designer. And we paid them by paying them to teach the class. So I had three made salaries, three professionals that I knew I had right here on campus uh, to get to do it. Well, and, and what a great opportunity for students to, to, to oh, literally sit on a set. That, that's something that didn't really happen for me till after college. I mean, I went places with cameras and helped set up tripods and things in, in college, but it was a lot of, uh, you know, really short subject, infomercial kind of documentary stuff. It was all really great, but, but like to, to be on a truly functioning film set, um, yeah. there's nothing like it. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, and and for them, like we shot with the uh, we have an um, an Airy camera, which I guess is a big deal. I'm not yeah. a technical, but I guess that's a big deal. Uh, and the students were shooting on it. I mean, our our, our camera operator was an undergrad student, uh, first AC, second AC, all students, and they they kind of rotated through. So by the time we were done, because we we do take this approach of it's it's like a teaching hospital is how I like to say it. Um, usually the option for undergrad students is either you get to intern on a professional set and you really don't get to do much. They're going too fast for a whole lot of education. Um, or you're doing a student production and it really is just a, you know, it's a, a student short film with a bigger budget. <laughs> so you're, you know, just longer. Um, and they don't really get to see, well, what, how do professionals run the set? And we, we hire in ringer professionals to come in um, and then, uh, but then fill out the crew with these students. So we take, we, we, we have our schedule built to be slightly longer than it would take a professional set to do so that there's space for teaching. There's space for, we're gonna let the students run this bit kind of a thing. So in the camera department, um, every student in the camera department ran camera for at least one scene, oh, even if great. the flapper board at the beginning, right? Um, you know, they, they eventually, they all got to sit in that chair and try to do that. So yeah, it's, it, you can't, you can't beat that level of experience, uh, because then you're ready for the outside world in a way that you're not just by doing your short films. Right. And you're in, uh, you're in post right now, right? Yeah. Yes. So you're looking at all the footage. You said you were you were doing a couple of reshoots because as yeah. you put the film together, you, you realized a few things you needed. Yeah, yeah. We we um, you know, we're we're a low budget university production, so the idea of doing reshoots is not tenable. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. Um, so we kind of had to scramble to make it work. But yeah, we we were in uh, the third edit. Uh, uh, one of the things that we have too is is post all uh, lined up. Uh, we even have a distributor, so we have a deadline that we have to get it done by. Oh, that's great. 
uh, so we immediately started in on on post. Uh, the editor was showing his third edit, and our DP um, came and you know had her watch it to give to give her notes as well. Um, you know, the director's giving notes, I'm giving notes, kind of collecting it from a wide variety of sources, and um, definitely want her eye on it. And she came and said, I have notes for you, but I have to give them in person. And I'm like, okay, that's never a good sign. <laughs> yeah. it, it means it's too harsh of a note to give, uh, pri you know, just by writing it out. And she said, yeah, I think these scenes are out of order. Uh, there's, there's this emotional response we want at this certain point, and it doesn't make sense. The audience isn't going to feel it. They, don't, they haven't had the time to have the reaction that they need to have. And um, my response to her, I said, I, I have two things. First off, I'm, um, I'm bitter about this because uh, note number one, you're absolutely right. Uh, it was a script problem. Um, and as a producer, I want to blame the writer, uh, but, I'm <laughs> <also> a writer. <laughs> but the writer messed up uh, and uh, she was right. And then, you know, the other thing I said is, oh, man, I wish I got this note in script stage, uh, but everything was so rushed. We didn't really get the level of development um, that we could have. And I didn't see it. Um, I didn't see it until she pointed it out. When she pointed it out, it was obvious. It's like, how in the world could I not see that in my own script? Uh, so we rearranged scenes, but that meant there were lines that didn't make sense because, you know, they were reactionary lines to something that hasn't happened yet. Um, and they were kind of like little moments that didn't quite um, uh, flow. And so we, uh, yeah, we did some ADR. Uh, brought our brought our lead actress back and uh, another key actress who is actually my wife. I wrote a part specifically for her. Um, so we knew going in, that's part of writing for who you know. I know exactly what her, her abilities are, what her humor is, what she can pull off in a scene. Um, and so, yeah, we, we shot uh, a scene with her. We shot another scene with uh, the lead small things. Um, but still, you know, kind of running around campus. People are like, oh, what are you shooting? It's like, oh, we're shooting Not Your Romeo and Juliet. Didn't you shoot that in May? <laughs> Are you still shooting it? Have you guys been shooting solid for the past several months? Like, no, no, we're just doing some pickups. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really fun process as a to kind of watch all these pieces coming together. Yeah, we have we have a, a, a former graduate student who is our editor um, and post sound. Uh, he's that's his professional company now, and and uh, he he really wanted to do it just to work with me on a on a piece. We had. Um, and we have somebody who's doing, um, I did some animation for us. So we have an animated uh, closing credit sequence, which really makes it feel professional. Uh, I think the show, I, I don't think anybody's going to realize how cheaply we actually made this thing because it's got a lot of really nice professional aspects to it. So on top of finishing this film, you've also been writing a book. And I want you to tell me about that. I think it's many, many friends around you have said, you've got to write a book about this. Tell, tell me about it. Uh, yeah, so it's it's um, tentatively called uh, uh, theology of script writing. Uh, I think I'm going to change it to theology and script writing. Uh, but it's it's a very thorough, uh, in-depth book about every aspect I can think of about uh, screenwriting, how to, how to, or script writing. Um, so it's it's screenwriting, television writing, and theater writing. Um, it actually applies to all story. Um, but those those are the areas that I know the best. So that's where I'm drawing my examples from are those uh, three areas. Um, yeah, it, it just kind of walks through what are the what are the basic principles 
uh, that are universal, that are common to all stories? What are some of the insights, the tricks that we use uh, in creating story and in, in making people feel or follow characters? Um, and and the idea is the thing that kind of makes it a little unique compared to, you know, like the John York or um, Truby or any of uh, any of the other kind of uh, writers on story. Uh, David, I have to mention David Trottier because he's one of my heroes uh, in in trying to talk about writing scripts. Um, the thing that makes mine different is just it incorporates the why these things work uh, based on theology, uh, based on God and how God has has designed us uh, and designed story. So that's the that's the basic premise of it. I think um, you you yeah, were even so, so sounds like some light reading. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And actually, hopefully, it is light reading. Hopefully, it is uh, very conversational. Uh, it's not uh, very academic, which might work against me if I ever wanted to be a uh, to be a textbook. Uh, but it is very conversational. It is very much, you know, hey, let's talk about God. So uh, you've all seen Spider-Man No Way Home. Let's talk about God using Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, you want, That's you great. Know, the, the latest Star Wars series. Um, let's let's talk about God using the. So I'm I'm very much a populist uh, in my tastes, and I'm also uh, hopefully very much a populist in my writing style. Uh, but it is it is pretty in depth, and it and I think uh, I think it hits some uh, pretty strong chords. Yeah, and I I think you were I, I might have jumped on the end of your sentence there, but I think you had said that I that I had heard. I think a couple of times you kind of give a talk or a panel on this um, and your point of view of like story is is kind of blueprinted into all of us. Like it is your premise and your um, the, the, the thesis. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but but the premise you are, are following is that God has kind of embedded our need for story in all of us. And he has kind of told a story throughout his whole creation that we just keep chasing stories uh, because, you know, he is telling a story. He's telling a story in us. Yeah. And, and I think um, I, there, there's a lot of us out there that that agree, at least on this much. And, and in fact, I, you were even talking about this in one of uh, the earlier uh, podcasts of yours, um, that there is this imprint. There is there, there's always a rebellion against basic story structure. <laughs> Um, this, you know, well, I'm not going to tell my story um, <laughs> this way. Um, there, there, there's a famous, um, you know, uh, French quote of, you know, every story has a beginning and a middle and an end, but not necessarily in that order, um, which, which is very clever. And the, and the clever response, uh, which I can't attribute who said it, uh, basically said, uh, yeah, he's right. And that's why nobody watches French films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of a dig. Um, but the, the, the truism is, is that there is a form. Um, not a formula. That's where people go too far. And we can talk about um, this is not a it, it's never a oh, right by this formula and you will have a hit. Uh, that's the mistake people make. But there is a form that we look to that we kind of agree on. So even in my opening chapter, I, I quote John York and I quote David Mamet. Um, you know, we're we're in agreement uh, that there really is a form that we seek in a story. Uh, there, there is a form that whether you're a young child, no matter what culture you're coming from, uh, if you tell a story outside of this form, people rebel. You know, if you if you if you tell the Goldilocks story to your child and you skip the middle, they know, <laughs> and and they're not going to be happy with you. You know, for doing it. I don't know about you, but I, I always 
when I'm babysitting nieces and nephews and we have to read them yet another story, I'm like, and there is a princess and she's now happy. The end. <laughs> like, yeah, happy. yeah. You, you start making up pieces uh, or you start editing so we can get to bed and they do not yeah. like that. Yeah, let's start cutting things. So so that's where I kind of started is is with structure, just talking about this basic structure. Um, and my my theory, what works for me, um, I'm a I'm a Christian and and I, I believe God uh, is active. <laughs> I believe, you know, when I when I talk about we talked about my career earlier, um, I would tell you this is where God pointed me. I, I write the stories that that I feel God is prompting me to write in the form that he's prompting me to write, which is how I got my weird career. Um, and and for me, I would say, oh, it's because he knew where I'm going and each thing that I do. Uh, sets me up for the next. So that's that's just how I interpret the world. That's how I look at the world. You know, so, God, he's in the setups and payoffs, man. He is in, and I have an entire chapter on setups and payoffs that includes a, a uh, companion chapter on biblical setup and payoff. Because <laughs> it is, and, I, and that's why we seek out, in my opinion, we're hardwired to look for God in everything. Um, and that includes the stories. So we're constantly looking for. So setups and payoffs, um, in my view, is is really just when we watch when we see a good setup and payoff in a movie knives out uh, which is brilliant rian johnson is brilliant yeah uh, or ryan I, I don't know how i'm supposed to pronounce his first name i just know <laughs> he's brilliant so uh ryan rian uh, uh if you're listening out there don't take offense <laughs> it's it's rian is it no, rian no i don't know it's, I, don't, it's I, think it's I think it's so ryan. a pop star right he's also yeah. a pop star um <laughs> But absolutely brilliant the setups and payoffs. And I think one of the reasons that we love setups and payoffs, and again, kind of this big view, is because that it's it's a reflection of prophecy. It's a reflection of God working uh, in lives. It's it's like this is this is the way God tells his story is through setups and payoffs. Um, yeah, so so it started with structure and then it started bleeding out to, yeah, setups and payoffs, character. Why why are we drawn to the types of characters that we're drawn to? Um, why, in, including, um, you know, the stories of the anti-hero, um, you know, which are a lot of, um, you know, kind of a side thing. It would be about the Christian subgenre, uh, which has its own battles. And for a lot of them, it's like, no, the good guy has to be very clear, clear, clean and clear. Uh, you can't have a good guy uh, who has bad in him. And at the same time, it's like we love Han Solo. We yeah. watch Star Wars. We watch Star Wars and some people are going away going, oh, I love Luke Skywalker. More people are going away going, I love Han Solo. Yeah, it's but like, we, let, let, let us introduce you to Moses. He had a few problems before uh, he became the chosen guy. Oh, exactly right. Or, or Paul. Uh, you know, Paul was, was the villain of the story until, <laughs> until the road to, to Damascus. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait. Uh, yeah, which is what we're drawn to because that's real. That's, that's truth. Well, you know, I, I was, I was, I start. we started this conversation with me talking about how you can see the code in the matrix. This is even a, a bigger seeing the code uh, mm -hmm. that you have spent years and years looking at. This yeah. isn't some, an idea you got like two years ago. This is, you've been talking about this for a decade. So I'm so yeah. glad it's going to be like in, in a crystallized book form that everybody can go read. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it because I do feel it's, it is a culmination of decades of, looking at story and concentrating on story and evaluating story, which is another part about it being a teacher is having to, when you're a writer, you don't have to know why your story works. Um, and that's something else I tell people. It's like, you don't have to read my book to be a great writer. Uh, you don't have to read any book to be a great writer. If it's in your bones, uh, you don't need to know why it works. Uh, no, nobody was like, oh, you know, I, I, 
I liked Knives Out until I found out that Johnson didn't know why it worked. And then now I hate it. It's like, no, it's a great story. <laughs> I love The Godfather. It doesn't matter whether he knew what he was doing or not. And he, he did know what he was doing, by the way. But even if he <laughs> didn't, uh, if the story works, the story works. Um, but uh, for, for the rest of us to, to kind of know, um, and I think even, even for writers, it's kind of helpful uh, I tell my writers, I'm, I'm getting kind of sidetracked here, Corey, but I, I tell my writers, uh, if you take my writing class, that won't make you a great writer. Uh, it'll make <laughs> you a great be writer. Uh, so you, you still need to have talent. Um, you still need to have inspiration. But when you write your draft and you're going, okay, how can I make this better? Um, what works, what doesn't work? My class will help you be able to evaluate. It'll help you to turn on an editor so you don't have to rely on uh, you know somebody else completely, or it'll help you with you know your friend's scripts. Going okay, here's here's why it's not working. Is you you don't have uh, you didn't set up the character in a way that we believe it. Or you, here's why it's not working. Your your um, your climax is anticlimactic, right? Um, so it, it'll help you become a rewriter. That's interesting. I mean, it is all, always a balance of you can you can do so much book learning, as the old people say. Yeah that yep. you book learn yourself out of the original sparks and inspiration that just kind of flow out of you. But, yeah. but you don't want to work in a bubble and just say, I'm the greatest and just write. So yeah. it's, it, it is a, I've seen some people that take too many screenwriting classes and read too many books mm -hmm. and they just are now, uh, they can't get out of their own way with all the, the rules they have set in front of them. So you got to yeah. just let it flow. But I, I, I love that, that like you do want to look to, here's the form, here's the universal form for centuries that has resonated with all human beings that's yeah. worth looking into yeah and and rules is another part of the problem because the gurus i mean you started by calling me a girl thank you for calling me a guru <laughs> um uh but the problem with gurus and their systems uh is you start to believe that the system is the thing yeah uh, you know so i just recently i was uh fighting over up with a student um, who, who believes I was interpreting it wrong. And he said, I, I can prove it to you because according to this book, this thing has to happen on page 17. And you're, you're having it happen later than page 17. So therefore, you know, uh, it's the page numbers um, or it's the, it, you know, it's got to have these uh, events. And, and there, there are no rules. Um, there, there are forms and there are expectations. And if you understand the form and you understand the expectation, then breaking the rule, um, you know, my, my mentor, Howard Stein, would always get upset at people who want to break the rules, uh, especially in college, because he would say, you don't know the rules. You can't break a rule if you don't know it's a rule. <laughs> yeah. You don't understand why it's there. So that's not a thing of saying, oh, you can't break the rule. It's saying you got to know what you're doing when you do that. When, when you, um, up is the perfect example. Uh, up is the story of an old man who flies his house away, which means that the up begins with Carl as an old man flying his house away. That's where it starts. Mm. So what's all the stuff before it? <laughs> why, why, why are we seeing the entire life of Carl and Ellie before we even get there? Uh, well, be, that's the hook. That's the thing that's going to emotionally draw us in and, and lock us in. Well, the hook for most movies is a page. Um, Knives Out is the perfect example. The, the hook for Knives Out is the discovery of the dead body. That's, that's what gets us emotionally in. Then we meet Marta and we're ready to go. Um, well, Up takes 15 pages to do what most scripts do in one page. Mm -hmm. It's a break of the form. But they knew what they were doing because they knew that 
if they spent all of this more time on the hook and less time in act two, part two, which is where they cut, then the audience will follow Carl anywhere. It doesn't matter how cranky he is. Uh, it doesn't matter how, you know, how much of a care, how mean he is to Russell. It doesn't matter how mean he is to Kevin. It doesn't matter how mean uh, he is to Doug, uh, sweet, loving Doug, right? Um, right. It's, it's, we're going to follow him anywhere because we love Ellie and Ellie loves Carl. And they spent a life of Ellie seeing in Carl his potential. And now it's, it's going to break our hearts if Carl can't find his way back to that. Yeah. They knew what they and were doing. It's it. Yeah. If you know the form, you can subvert the form. Exactly. Um, and they may have found that also as they, uh, you know, we, we don't have to drill down too deep, but I wonder when they discovered that. I wonder when they discovered how much they had to yeah. load the front. Um, Cause every movie's different. So I think that is a healthy mm -hmm. way to say it. So I, I, maybe I'll say you're the anti-guru guru. Don't call me go. a guru <laughs> as people seek your <laughs> guidance. Um, yeah, well, give me all the money you would have given to another guru and, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Well, uh, it sounds like we'll be able to see the film when it comes out and please let me know. And I'm going to shout about it on this podcast, but you, I know your book is, uh, still kind of in, uh, what do they say in the publishing industry? It's in galleys right now. You're having people They're, read a draft. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's ready to go. I've had people read it and, and give notes and I've rewritten it. Um, and now it's just a matter of finding publishing uh, or how I publish it. So I'm, yeah. I'm in that age of some people are, are smart and they have a publisher lined up and the publisher agrees to publish it before they write it. And then they write it for the publisher. Um, for me, this is a passion project. Um, so I kind of needed to write it the way that I felt it needed to be written. And now looking for a publisher, um, now looking for a way to get it out there. Well, I, I'm I'm hopeful and, and certain that that the world needs this book. So when it gets published. Thank you. Uh, please, please let me know. And I will also tell uh, all our listeners here because I'm trying to cultivate kind of a community of, of creative people, whatever the career is. I've, I, we're, we're talking to a lot of people in the business, but even people outside of the business may find this fascinating because it is yeah. it is looking at popular entertainment through a new lens. And, and uh, yeah. I think that that makes the popular entertainment more intriguing and interesting the next time you watch it. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is a book that, in, yes, in part is written to the writer for the writer. Um, but it's actually written also for the viewer. That's great. Well, Sean, I know uh, uh, we're, we're getting to the end of our time here, um, but I will definitely pull you back in for other things. Uh, maybe we'll do a deep dive into one particular movie because it's always fun to do that with you. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love, love to do that. All right. Well, thanks for this week, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Corey. Sean Gaffney, a man, a myth, a legend, a storyteller, and a master of his craft. I could talk like this all day, man. I just, I want to get as much of this as I can on, on a recording, uh, because later I'll end up talking like this again and annoy everyone. But for now, I still have the thunder, the deep thunder. Well, that's it for our show today, and I do, I do want to thank my guest, Sean Gaffney. I always love talking to him. Man, he always inspires me whenever I talk to him. And um, as I said, you know, I, I've gone to him for story questions when I'm developing a script. Um, he's just, he's got a different brain. And I think that's important when you're a writer, when you're a creator, show your stuff to someone else. Um, bounce it off of someone you trust and who maybe has a different brain or a different point of view than you on a lot of things because, you know, that'll push your art in a way that, uh, you know, if you're just working in a bubble, 
It's only coming out of your sensibilities. And sometimes it's good to hear about other sensibilities, other senses and sensibilities. Hey, and before I forget, uh, please check out my stand-up comedy special on drybarcomedy.com. Go to drybarcomedy, and if you use my promo code, Corey Comedy, that's C-O-R-Y-C-O-M-E-D-Y, you get a month free of their monthly service. So uh, check it out. Um, so stay creative, and um, if you love the sound of your own voice, record it, because it's always fun. I've done it since childhood, and I'll keep doing it on this podcast. I'm Corey Edwards. Thanks for stopping by.